Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volur XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. From the blackest corners of your mind, they call, pulling you deep into shadow, twisting your senses, keeping you from sleep. It's time to face your darkest fears. This is Tales to Terrify. Good evening, children of the night, and welcome. Hear my words. Take this to heart. This is your final warning. The swirling underwater vortex of our nautical-themed flash fiction contest seals forever at midnight central time on May 31st. That's this Tuesday, just a couple days away. So, if you've been slowly dog-paddling your way out from shore, this is your sink-or-swim moment. Time to throw off those water wings, take a deep breath, and dive as deep and as fast as you can. Let that ink flow from your pen like blood from a fresh vein, and get your 1,500 words or less cast into the roiling waters before the portal Seals forever. Tales to terrify dot com slash 
Flash Contest, in case you've missed it, is where you can drop your masterpiece. And if your story is selected, you'll win a cool 50 bucks, have your story produced on the show, and be able to wow friends and family with the knowledge you're the master of short seafaring scares. We've got a big job ahead of us, selecting a winner. There's been an incredible array of imaginative, spine-tingling terrors from the deep poured into our contest submissions, and I can't thank everyone enough who waded into these dark waters by submitting a story. We'll be announcing the winner by July 1st, so stay tuned for that. Speaking of winners, I mentioned a couple weeks ago that we'd be sharing a pair of Bram Stoker Award-nominated tales with you. And this week, that time has come. Congratulations to this year's winners and to everyone who made the shortlist. If you're not that familiar with the Bram Stoker Awards, I think it's safe to say they're one of the premier awards for our genre. Put on by the Horror Writers Association, they happen each year in tandem with StokerCon, which went down two weeks ago in Denver, Colorado. Needless to say, being nominated for a Stoker Award is a pretty big deal, and making it to the final ballot? Well, that's something to scream about. So I'm thrilled to be able to share two of this year's final selections for the short fiction category. If you'd like to see the full list of winners and nominees, I've put a link in the show notes. Now let's dive in, shall we? Our first story for the evening comes from Carol Geisander. Bram Stoker Award-nominated author Carol Geisander writes and edits horror, dark fiction, and science fiction, twisted tales that touch your heart. Her stories are in numerous anthologies, including Under Twin Suns, Alternate Histories of the Yellow Sign, from Hippocampus Press 2021, and she co-edited the Even in the Grave ghost story anthology with James Chambers from Neo-Paradoxa, July 2022. A lifelong volunteer, Carol lives in the northern New Jersey suburbs of New York City and holds a variety of volunteer positions with the Horror Writers Association. Find her at carolgeisender.com or on Twitter and Instagram as at carolgeisender. Children of the Night, join me for Carol Geisender's Stoker-nominated The Yellow Crown, first published in Under Twin Suns, Alternate Histories of the Yellow Sign, by Hippocampus Press.
The leaded glass transom window over the massive mahogany door looked down at Betty as if judging her best dress, such as it was. She stood in front of the three-story brick residence on Bleecker Street and debated about inquiring after the job. She looked left and right, but none of the passers-by paid any attention to her or the building. The sounds of a regimental march came to her ears, likely from the 20th Dragoon Regiment heading to their barracks in nearby Washington Square Park after yet another maneuver. Over the stern beat floated the fluid notes of the jazz club down the street. Of course, jazz music was everywhere these days. The young woman considered walking right up to the front door and knocking, as, after all, this was a house of ill repute, although there was nothing on the exterior to indicate this. Would the standard proprieties apply? But her heart quailed, and she ducked her head and scurried along the side alley until she reached the servant's entrance in the rear. Betty adjusted the back seams of her stockings and smoothed her short bobbed hair under her cloche hat, finally knocked and managed to only jump a little bit when the door swept open. A middle-aged woman in a calf-length plaid dress greeted her, her hair swept back into elaborate curls. Hello, miss, and you are? Betty automatically dipped into a curtsy. I'm Betty, ma'am. She looked up into the woman's eyes, emboldened by a sudden surge of hope that this job could work out. My neighbor sent me for the hostess position. She said she knows you. The woman opened the door further and gestured for her to come in. Ah, yes. How do you do, Betty? I'm Evelyn Palmer. I run the house here, at least all the support side. Madam is, of course, in charge of the establishment. A small smile played about her lips. As you shall soon understand. Come in, come on in. She beckoned Betty into the kitchen where a plump woman kneaded bread dough at the table while some stew bubbled on the stove. This is Mary. You'll get to know her in time. Come through here into my office, dear. Betty smiled shyly at Mary as she went by. Everything smells delicious in here. Her heart warmed when she received a pleasant smile back from the cook. Evelyn's office was a small room with a desk and chair and another chair by the window. Have a seat. Please tell me about your past positions and why this appealed to you. Well, I'm 18, but have been working for three years, and now I'm on my own, so I have to earn more. I'm a hard worker, but I don't have much education, so I've never had a good-paying job. Just recently, co-check girl at the jazz club, and for a good while I was a waitress at the dinette over by the park. I know how to be friendly and polite because that helped me get more tips, but I didn't like that so many men assumed they could, well, you know. Evan looked at her for a long moment, then nodded and wrote something on a piece of paper. Here's how much it pays. I assume you can start now. We'll review things here, and then I'll give you the tour, all right? Betty blinked. You mean I have the job? And that's the pay for the month? Thank you. Evelyn cocked her head to one side. Certainly, dear, but this is your pay for each week. We like to take care of all the women that we can here. Of course, some people think that Madam has some of the ladies take care of all the men upstairs. She pursed her lips and shook her head. Betty's cheeks grew hot and she knew she must be blushing furiously. Yes, ma'am. But she wasn't going to turn down a good position now that she was on her own, not with her lack of skills to get an office job or any other well-paying job. This was certainly a more pleasant location than working as a scullery maid or coat chuck girl. All women are equal here. Evelyn smiled into the distance, her eyes unfocused, then brought her attention back to Betty. You see, Madame had been married to a military man who rose to the rank of lieutenant colonel at a young age. 
He commanded the regiment here in the city, which made them a part of high society. Then he was killed in the service. She shook her head with her lips pursed for a moment. He left her this house and a very small allowance, but she had no way to improve her financial position and no social standing without him. She had much grander designs. Don't worry, you'll soon see. So she is a widow? I'm sorry. Betty tilted her head and her lips pressed together in sympathy. A widow, like her mother had been before she too died, much too young. Madam, has the ladies with the men... My neighbor told me I wouldn't have to do this? Her cheeks continued to warm. Evelyn answered in a kindly tone. All is not as it seems. Your duties will be to answer the door and greet callers from mid-morning until nine o'clock in the evening. You will take them to one of several rooms, depending upon the invitation that they show you. You are to be friendly and courteous at all times, as befits a high-class establishment. Is that clear? Betty nodded. You will have some other duties in between, such as dusting and folding linens. I do apologize for that, but we are a small house, and there is not so much to do that makes it worth hiring another person. But don't worry, no, it's not what you think. All right, let me take you on the tour. She stood up behind the desk, and Betty scrambled to her feet as well. Yes, ma'am. Evelyn's eyes softened. You may call me Evelyn or Mrs. Palmer, but you don't need to call me ma'am. You will, of course, call our employer madam. It's what our guests expect. Betty stifled a smirk. Madam, of course, Evelyn. She followed the older woman back into the hallway. They stopped in the music room where two lovely young women, a few years her senior, were at the piano. They played and sang together in low, quiet tones, their heads touching. Betty didn't recognize the song. Something about Camilla and the stars in the black sky over a lake. But the music was haunting. She couldn't say what it reminded her of, but she wanted to stay and listen. Her heart throbbed. Evelyn touched her arm and led her through the elegant front parlor and into the foyer, dominated by the huge mahogany door and leaded glass transom she had seen from the outside. A round, polished table sat in the center of the foyer with a silver tray atop it. Betty noticed several cards on the tray and glanced at one as they went by. It bore an engraved image of a dove and read, Mr. Jones is invited to call upon Miss Amanda at noon on Thursday. The clock on the mantelpiece in the parlor said one o'clock, so Mr. Jones had likely been there for an hour. She spun around, startled by the sound of footsteps. A dapper gentleman came slowly down the stairs wearing expensive leather awkwards and a three-piece herringbone suit with wide lapels, a broad smile upon his face. Betty blushed and dropped into a curtsy. Mr. Jones, this is Betty. She will be our new hostess starting today. Evelyn inclined her head to the gentleman, and he paused and looked at Betty. Excellent. Glad to have you here, my dear. Thank you for a lovely visit, Mrs. Palmer. My soul is quite refreshed. Evelyn opened the front door, and he stepped out, looked left and right, then strolled down the street as if he owned the world. Come along. Through here, this is the dining room. Periodically, Madame will hold a dinner party for her most devout regulars. A lovely affair, the last one was, went well into the evening. Evelyn shook herself. Tsk, tsk, come along. I will show you the rest of the house. They proceeded up the magnificent staircase. Betty ran her fingers along the railing, marveling at the intricate carving of the balustrade and thinking about how much dusting that kind of woodwork required. The pair proceeded down the long hallway at the top. 
Soft voices murmured from behind one closed door as they passed. Evelyn seemed to be thinking as she tapped her finger on her cheek. Let's see, this one is open. Let's stop in here for a moment. Betty stepped behind her into the spacious, well-appointed bedroom with a carved wooden headboard and a beautiful chaise long in front of a large window. She clasped her hands in front of her and looked all around, afraid to touch anything. Oh, this is lovely. Such a beautiful room. Evelyn picked up a large, leather-bound book from the mantel and held it out to Betty. Here we are. I reserve some time in your training for you to read this in the afternoon, dear. The gold-embossed lettering glinted sunlight in her eyes so she couldn't read the title. She shook her head and her stomach clenched. She had never been a good student and had dropped out of school to help her mother pay the bills. I'm sorry, Mrs. Palmer. I don't read very well. I don't think I could read the whole thing today. Evelyn frowned again. Tisk tisk. Well, I have another plan, because you must read it before you leave tonight. Yes, ma'am. Betty's insides quailed and her voice shook. She looked up and saw the other woman looking at her with a frown. I mean, Evelyn? The woman's face brightened. That's better, dear. I like you already. We'll take care of the reading problem tonight. Don't you worry. She led Betty down the hall, showing her some other rooms, each more beautiful than the first. Now, let's visit with Madam. She stopped at the door at the end of the hall, knocked politely three times, and waited for an answer. Come in. The voice was gentle yet commanding, and Betty wondered how it could be both at the same time. Evelyn opened the door, and the two stepped inside the most beautiful room that Betty had ever seen, even after viewing the other rooms in the house. Lush oriental carpets covered the floor, and carved marble enclosed the fireplace over the warm, crackling fire. The damask curtains of the huge four-poster bed were drawn back on rings, and a tufted velvet sofa sat against the far wall, next to a small bar cart. Seated at a writing desk was a woman of about thirty, with blonde hair, immaculately coiffed in a short bob. Her tailored wool dress had a flat, open collar and pintucks down the front. She still wore her wedding ring on her left hand and a massive yellow diamond ring on the other. A door behind her hung partly open to the dressing room beyond. Betty's eyes widened. She wasn't sure what she had expected, but she was rapidly learning that things were different than she'd imagined. This was a lovely lady. The woman stood up as they crossed the room. She smiled directly at Betty, who suddenly felt that she was where she had belonged her whole life. Evelyn said, Madam, this is Betty, our new hostess. She's just come in today. Madam reached out and grasped both of Betty's hands. How do you do, Betty? Evelyn told me that she learned about you from another woman we know, who said you were down on your luck. Betty wasn't sure why, but she started to fall to her knees, stuttering something about her thanks. Madam pulled her to her feet again. No, dear, all are equal here. Her eyes flitted back to Evelyn's. Oh, I see she hasn't quite completed her preparation. She tilted her head to one side, although Betty couldn't hear any question being asked. Yes, she says she's not a strong reader, perhaps? Evelyn held out one hand, palm up. Of course. Mr. Morgan received the yellow sign? When he arrives tonight, have her accompany him in. That will do nicely. Betty watched the exchange between the two women, not quite understanding what was going on, but happy enough that she had not been expelled for her lack of reading skills. 
perhaps this job would work out after all because she wanted to be part of this group now more than ever. Until later tonight, dear Betty, I'm so glad you've joined us. Madam squeezed her hands one more time, gave her a sweet smile, and turned back to the papers on the desk behind her. All Betty could see were lots of numbers on the papers. Yes, madam. She dropped into a curtsy and followed Evelyn out the door. The rest of her afternoon was spent learning about the different ways to greet their guests and how to recognize the type of invitation that they brought with them. Betty turned out to be a fast learner, especially because all the invitations had a different symbol on them that helped her decode what she should do when each gentleman caller arrived. Some were to be taken to the bedrooms at the front, but a certain number of them with a special sign were to be escorted directly back to Madame's room. After several hours, Evelyn pronounced her ready, and the pair moved to the dining room for dinner. They were joined by the two singers, Jessica and Amy, and several other young ladies. Madame joined the group just as they sat at the table, coming downstairs with a young woman she introduced as Amanda. The chatter around the table put Betty at ease, although she didn't understand many of the places they spoke about. After dinner, they all helped clear the table, but Mary shooed them out of the kitchen so she could do the dishes. Adam stopped to touch Betty on the shoulder as she passed by. She leaned in. I'll see you when you bring Mr. Morgan upstairs, dear. Just come in with him and take a seat on the stool by the fireplace and keep quiet, all right? As Betty's eyes widened, she went on. I promise you won't feel uncomfortable. Betty nodded. Yes, madam, and thank you for welcoming me. You are indeed welcome. Jessica? She turned and headed toward the stairs with Jessica following on her heels. Half an hour later, the resonant sounds of the door chime filled the front parlor where Betty waited. She opened the door to a gray-haired man in an elegant double-breasted tweed suit and greeted him with her best manners, as Evelyn had taught her. Good evening, sir. May I see your invitation, please? I must say I'm not exactly sure why I came here tonight, except I received this in the morning post today. I felt compelled to visit. Pulled a card out of his suit pocket and passed it to her. It bore the special sign on the top that indicated she was to escort him to Madame's boudoir, and read, Mr. Morgan is invited to call upon Jessica at 7 p.m. She invited him in, escorted him up the stairs and down to the end of the long hallway, where she knocked three times on Madame's door. At Madame's invitation, she came in with Mr. Morgan, then moved quietly to the fireplace and sat where she had been bidden. Dear Henry, it's a pleasure to see you again and welcome you to our house for the first of what I hope will be many visits. Madame stood from her writing desk, dressed in a yellow chiffon gown that fit closely at the hips. A beaded yellow headband sparkled in the firelight. How has the stock market been treating you? He blinked and looked all around as if he had a hard time meeting her eyes. Well enough, Constance, although it's been going steadily down for months for some reason, as I'm sure you know. I miss all our conversations at dinner parties, as I swear you understand more about finance than anyone I've ever met. It's almost a shame you're a woman and not involved in business. Gave her a small bow. Madam's lips turned up slightly at the sides. I'm actually hoping that we will be able to discuss financial affairs together very soon. Betty tilted her head as she followed the conversation. She had overheard a discussion between two men at the jazz club that things were rapidly changing in the financial world and they hadn't understood the sudden decline. Mr. Morgan cleared his throat. 
I must say it was a shame about what happened to poor Lewis. Such an upright young man, and to die so young. Amazing that he overcame all the nonsense about his cousin's debacle and continued on with his military career. What was that all about, anyway? Madame gave an enigmatic smile. I actually undertook a good deal of research about that after Lewis passed, leaving me a widow with no prestige and little money. His cousin Hildreth made an ill-conceived attempt to bring about a huge change in the world, and I cannot endorse his methods. But Henry, enough business talk for now. Let me introduce Jessica. At her words, the young woman who had been playing piano earlier entered from the adjoining dressing room. She now wore a stunning black beaded cocktail dress that bared her beautiful shoulders and a feather headdress. She rivaled anything that Betty had seen in the jazz clubs and was as beautiful as Clara Bow, the film actress that she and her mother used to enjoy together when they could spare a nickel for a night at the movies. Mr. Morgan turned as she approached but seemed to be struck speechless upon sight of her. The young woman came close and placed her hands on the lapels of his suit jacket trailing her fingers down his arm as she helped him slip it off and then laid it over a chair. The man paid no attention to the others in the room, following Jessica as she led him to the tufted sofa. He accepted the glass of bourbon she handed him. She spoke quietly as she pulled him down next to her, explaining that Madame was going to read to them for a while to get them in the mood. He frowned but sat dutifully and sipped the bourbon, not taking his eyes off the young woman. Madam took her seat at the desk, opened the leather-bound book Evelyn had brought in earlier, and began to read aloud. Jessica draped herself over one of his shoulders. Betty sat quietly and listened. She had a little trouble following the words at first, as it seemed to be a play with many foreign characters and locations. She recognized Haster and the Lake of Holly from the song that Jessica had been singing at the piano, and that helped her focus. Mr. Morgan listened, but got more and more distracted by the lovely Jessica at his side. At one point, however, he looked up and demanded, What is this that we are listening to? It's like nothing I've ever heard before. Madam turned the book so he could see the cover, then resumed reading until he interrupted her again. That's the king in yellow! Stop! Don't you know it's dangerous to read that? They say that if you read the second act, it drives you mad. Jessica leaned into nibble on his ear, and Betty could just make out her soft words. Darling, you have it all wrong. The second act is what will make our time together even better than you could ever imagine. He tilted his head toward her, half-closing his eyes. Betty pressed her hands together in front of her. She had heard of the play from one of the patrons when she worked at the coat check in the jazz lounge, but they had all laughed and dared each other to read it. Madame resumed reading again in a soft voice. Act Two Betty leaned back against the wall by the fire, one arm dangling over the side of the stool. What had she just heard? Who could write such torturous words, strident and piercing, beautiful and terrifying all at the same time? How long had she been sitting here? She turned her head and looked across the room. Mr. Morgan seemed to be in much the same shape. He sprawled against the tufted sofa, his eyes glazed and a faint smile playing about his lips. Jessica was curled up with her feet on the couch, leaning on his shoulder and murmuring to Madame across his prone torso. Somehow, Betty understood all their quiet words as if they were speaking directly to her. Madame turned in her direction and smiled, and she felt at perfect peace. She belonged here. The three women spoke of the hills of Haster 
and the rippling waters of the Lake of Holly and what it would be like when women ruled this world and made it as magnificent. After a time, Mr. Morgan turned his head toward Madame and joined in the conversation of impossible things he had never seen but now knew so well. It was hard to say how long they continued murmuring to each other, but Betty felt no hunger, no thirst. Madame mentioned some numbers and changes. Was it money? Betty let the words wash over her. Mr. Morgan smiled and nodded and traced his hand in the air as if he were sketching something. A plan? An agreement? She had no idea. Eventually, Madame beckoned him over to her writing desk, and he took up a pen and signed some papers where she pointed. Madame smiled and stroked his cheek with her fingers, and he kissed her hand and kissed her ring, then stood straight and looked around. Jessica helped him on with his jacket, smoothing the lapel in much the same way she had done when he first arrived. Wasn't that even better than he could ever have imagined? He squeezed the young woman's hand, and the pair walked past Betty to the door. He had the same broad smile she had seen on Mr. Jones when he was leaving that afternoon, and she heard his footsteps receding down the hall as if he owned the world. She sat up straight and stretched her arms over her head for a moment. Her whole view of the world had changed. There were such possibilities now. No obstacles lay before them. Madame raised her hand and flipped it over, palm up, two fingers pointing in her direction. Yes, she did have a question. How did this all come about? She started moving toward Madame Constance and realized that the beaded headband was actually a tiara of yellow diamonds. Madame smiled. I discovered that my husband's cousin, Mr. Castaigne, had been interpreting things all wrong. He tried to take over this world by force and turn it into his empire for his own megalomaniacal purposes. She stared into the distance for a moment, speaking in a dreamy tone. But once I read the play, I myself traveled to Carcosa. I viewed the stars in the dark sky over an empty land, beautiful and desolate. Empty because the king in yellow was dead. The people were desperate. Madame Constance gripped both of Betty's hands and looked directly into her eyes. I came back to my home and resolved to set things right for all the women like you and me who had no power and few options. She gave a fierce smile. The tiara flashed golden in the dying firelit as she tossed her head. For you see, in Carcosa, they crowned me as the queen in yellow. That was Carol Geisender's The Yellow Crown, as read by the author herself. Double thank you, Carol. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. 
go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Our second tale tonight comes from Anna Taborska. Anna Taborska is a filmmaker and horror writer. She has written and directed two short fiction films, two documentaries, and an award-winning TV drama, and worked on 20 other film and television productions, including the BBC series Auschwitz, The Nazis, and The Final Solution. Anna's short stories have appeared in numerous anthologies, and her debut collection, For Those Who Dream Monsters, won the Dracula Society's Children of the Night Award and was nominated for a British Fantasy Award. Anna received a Bram Stoker Award nomination for her novelette The Cat Sitter in her micro-collection Shadow Cats, as well as for her collection Bloody Britain, which was also nominated for two British Fantasy Awards. Listen with me, Children of the Night, to Anna Taborska's Stoker-nominated Two Shakes of a Dead Lamb's Tale, first published in Paul Finch's anthology Terror Tales of the Scottish Lowlands in October of last year. Remember the urban legend about the dealer who got put away? And then all the hoods and heads from the neighborhood hightailed it over to his place to look for his fridge full of acid from the 60s? Well, I knew that dealer. No, seriously, I really did know him. I was 15 when I met him. A girl from school had invited me to a party, along with some of our out-of-school friends. Apart from the usual teenagers getting drunk and smoking weed, there was a smartly dressed man with long gray hair tied back in a ponytail. He introduced himself to me 
a new kid he hadn't seen around before, and a soft, reassuring voice. He disappeared briefly from view, returning a while later with cups and a large teapot. A hush fell on the room and people gathered round, holding out teacups as he poured. He noticed my hesitation. You can have as much or as little as you want. He soothed in tones as velvet as the light cast over the room by the tie-dye scarf-covered lamps. The mushroom tea was vile. I settled back in my chair and waited. A little time passed. Then the room started to breathe. It transformed into an organic entity. The walls moved gently in and out. An art student's sketch of a marble horse's head snorted and tossed about on the wall. And everything turned a shade of purple I'd never seen before, or since. How the man got my number, I don't know. Perhaps he'd asked and I'd given it to him. I don't remember. But he lent me a copy of Amazing Dope Tales. It's probably still lying around somewhere in my mother's house. And he phoned me a few times, suggesting that I drop out of school and move in with him to help him raise his daughter. She was older than I was. I didn't drop out of school. Eventually, I'd go on to do my A-levels and go to university, where I'd learn how spiders spun different webs under the influence of different drugs. But at the time, the next thing I knew was that the man was in prison, and everyone was heading for his place to look for the fridge. Was there really a refrigerator filled with uber-potent LSD in a North London flat somewhere? I don't know. But this isn't a story about an acid chemist being busted on his way to Ireland in a decommissioned ambulance full of prohibited substances and drug-making apparatus. This is a story about sheep. Wake up! My husband Dan was hissing at me from his prime position in the window seat. We're nearly there. I hadn't meant to fall asleep. The train from Houston to Carlisle passed through some spectacular countryside, and I'd been hoping to soak it all in. But as usual, the train's rocking motion proved too soporific for me to resist. I fought the urge to go right back to sleep. Well, a sharp shake from Dan helped. And we were soon throwing on our jackets and pulling our bags off the luggage My in-laws were waiting for us outside the station. I don't know why my husband always insisted we go on holiday with his parents. No, that's not strictly true. I do know. His parents were generous and my husband loved cash savings. Despite bringing in a six-figure salary as a hedge fund manager, he always insisted that I pay my way and half the household bills. Not easy when I never averaged more than two novels a year, and never more than a 4K advance on either of them. Why was I still married to him, you ask? Well, he was nice-looking, fairly intelligent, and occasionally a good laugh. Not really my type. Not the usual long-haired, black-leather, jacket-wearing, laid-back stoner that I'd tended to go for since my teens. But you know what they say. Every girl's crazy about a sharp-dressed man. And perhaps Dan's clean-cut look, immaculately tailored wardrobe, and go-getter confidence are what turned my head in the first place. And Dan's parents, although generally disapproving and occasionally mocking of me, and despite their modest pensions, were generous when it came to family vacations so that neither Dan nor I ever had to put a hand in our pockets when we were with them. And now we were in my in-law's car, being driven by Dan's father at the start of another family holiday. Dumfries and Galloway, not a part of the world that had ever come on my radar.
Well, perhaps a wee dram to your man burns now and again, but that was about it. And more's the pity, I thought, as we drove past miles of rolling fields, the odd patch of snow still sparkling here and there. Scattered about the gentle landscape were the pale specks of sheep, which would soon glow a curiously pretty shade of peach pink in the sunset. After about a quarter of an hour's drive, the M6 morphed into the A75, some say Scotland's most haunted road, known as the Ghost Road. Over the years, phantom stagecoaches, roadside specters, ghostly beasts, and shrieking apparitions have been reported by disturbed motorists, and apparently some long-distance lorry drivers avoid the road at all costs. We drove along in blissful ignorance, past Gretna Green, the famous haven for young couples escaping England since the latter half of the 18th century, to take advantage of Scotland's relaxed matrimonial laws and marry without their parents' consent. Another 15 minutes and we left the ghost road, turning right at Carruthers Town onto the B-725, in the direction, as the crow flies, of the small town of Lockerbie, where the doomed Pan Am Flight 103 came down on December 21, 1988, killing all 259 on board and 11 people on the ground. 32 years later in the United States is trying to extradite the suspected bomb maker from Libya. And to this day, the Lockerbie bombing remains the deadliest single terrorist attack in the history of the United Kingdom, and the second deadliest terrorist attack in American history after 9-11. But we weren't going as far as Lockerbie. A minute after our turn onto the B-725, as we were crossing Dalton Burn, I saw it. Dusk fell early at the beginning of April, but there was still enough light, and I know I saw it in the ditch. The overturned, resting skeleton of what must have once been an ambulance. Dirty, decomposing, overtaken by nature. The scraggly dark contours of sheep feeding on the grass that grew around it and inside it. No peachy lambskins, these. Although I had but a brief glimpse. Something about those murky, unkept shapes miraculously devouring the outgrowth from that rotting vehicle unnerved me. And made me feel slightly sick. A reaction, you'll agree, entirely out of proportion to the situation. But it stayed with me for the next couple of minutes. And then it was dark, and we were turning into the driveway of the impressive one-story U-shaped converted farmhouse that was our destination. Dan and I grabbed our things from the car boot and hurried after my in-laws across the frosty graveled courtyard and into the house. The gray slate-roofed, whitewashed farmhouse had been gutted inside and turned into a contemporary holiday home. A fitted kitchen with a large breakfast bar opened onto a vast open-plan space, the dining table and a living area. Two big black leather corner sofas faced each other across a large square coffee table. There was a handmade pebble fireplace with a glass-fronted wood-burning stove, and enormous glass patio doors running the length of the main section of the house opened onto the darkness of the garden and whatever lay beyond. Dan's parents had driven up from Manchester a couple of days earlier, and had already made themselves at home. It was a partially completed jigsaw puzzle on the coffee table. The lid of the cardboard box lying on one of the sofas intimated that the configured thousand pieces would reveal a picture postcard verdant landscape, dotted with, you guessed it, sheep. A quick flashback of munching, grinding jaws, protruding incisors ripping up fetid, polluted vegetation, and two banks of molars churning, pulverizing. 
boggly ovine eyes staring blankly into space. What are you doing? Dan's impatient snarl brought me out of my reverie, and I quickly followed my husband into our allocated twin room, unpacking some toiletries and anything that would benefit from being hung up in the wardrobe. Half an hour later, we were back in our warmest jackets and headed for the butchered lamb, as unpleasantly named a pub as ever I'd patronized. The road to the pub was almost pitch black. Luckily, Dan's parents, ever prepared, had a torch, which they shined at the road ahead of us. There was no pavement to speak of, only a narrow road with tight hedges on either side. And I wondered how on earth a car would see us in time to stop before it flattened us. But there were no cars, either on the way there or on the way back. Only scuffling noises in the hedges, which no one apart from me seemed to hear, as the others walked slightly ahead of me, talking and laughing loudly. I'd never known Dan or his parents to leave a pub before closing time, and tonight was no exception. It was midnight by the time we got back to the farmhouse. The three of them called it a night, but it was way too early for me to retire. I've never been much of a morning person or one to go to bed before 2 or 3 a.m. Nighttime was just too precious. It was the only time I really had to myself. No demands, no phone calls, no pressure. I promised Dan I wouldn't disturb everyone by having the TV on, and I settled down to a horror novel, a debut by an author whose short stories frequently appeared in the same anthologies as mine. It wasn't long before I had the distinct feeling that I was not alone in the vast living space. I looked around for Dan or one of his parents, but nobody had come in from any of the bedrooms. The silence in the house was unnerving. Not even the fridge was buzzing. I sat very still for a while, surveying the empty room and listening. Eventually, I returned to reading my book. And then it came again, that feeling that something had moved across the room without my seeing it. From my position on one of the sofas, I could see the kitchen to my left and the large, dark expanse of patio doors on the right. I sat motionless, watching, listening. The sensation of movement came again. Careful not to make a sound, I scoured the room again. And then I saw it creep forward, a tiny mouse. It hadn't noticed me. I watched as the little creature inspected the kitchen floor. Finding nothing of interest, it sat back on its haunches and proceeded to clean its face with its paws. It must have caught sight of me then, as suddenly it bolted, past the patio doors, and disappeared into a little gap somewhere between the wall and the floor. I made a mental note not to blurt out anything about the nighttime visit to Dan or his parents, lest they harbored Latin, maricidal tendencies that might prove fatal for my furry little companion. It must have been about 3 a.m. by the time I was sleepy enough to go to bed. I woke up to the Mary Celeste. No sight or sound of my husband or my in-laws. And for once, their enthusiastic bickering hadn't woken me up at some godforsaken time of the morning. I hadn't even heard Dan get out of bed. Dan? But there was no sign of any of them anywhere. My gratitude at having been allowed a lion soon turned to a tinge of annoyance at having been left behind without so much as a note, and even a slight sense of abandonment. I looked out through the patio doors. Still no sign of anyone. But the sight that greeted me went some way of lifting my spirits. 
The profound blackness of the previous night had been replaced by a stunning vista of grassy fields stretching as far as the eye could see. And sheep, not the gloomy monstrosities of the previous night, but placidly grazing ewes surrounded by little lambs, sweet as anything and whiter than the patches of snow that were already melting in the late morning sun. As I watched, I saw a lamb tense up on its four little legs and spring into the air. Once, twice, three times, in what looked like an expression of sheer boundless, uncontained joy, I was mesmerized. I watched the bouncing lambs for a while, and then I decided, screw Dan and my in-laws. I'd have breakfast, and then I'd go for a walk on my own and take photos of sheep. My mother-in-law had left out half a loaf of sliced bread for me on the breakfast counter. I found some jam and butter in the fridge and made myself a round of toast. I put on the kettle and started to look for the tea bags. Where the hell were they? Some folks can't face the day without a cup of coffee. With me, it was tea. I decided to brave the kitchen cupboards. There was more stuff in there than I'd expected. A cornucopia of perfectly edible and potable products left behind by the previous guests. There were half-full packets of pasta, open boxes of cereal, hardly touched bags of sugar and flour, abandoned coffee jars, a container of drinking chocolate powder, and a pretty metal tin with faded paisley patterns containing what could only be loose-leaf tea. Success. Well, partial success at least. A nice English breakfast tea bag it wasn't. But it was tea and it would do. Half an hour later, I was headed across the back garden, past what the holiday home brochure described as a rotating summer house, a large shed which could be swiveled round to face the sun at different times of day, and down a path leading along the neighboring fields and past the sheep. I took some photos, but decided not to get too close so as not to disturb them. Besides, I didn't like the way they were starting to look at me. Beady eyes staring right at me, following my every move. Just because you're paranoid doesn't mean sheep aren't out to get you, I thought, only half-jokingly and hastened my pace. A chill, stale, southerly wind started to blow, and I wondered vainly whether it was blowing from Stellafield, the notorious nuclear site 44 miles away, which so vexed environmental activists and had been polluting the Cumbrian coast and the Irish Sea since 1950. Then the path I was following inclined upwards a bit, curved a little, and I came face to face with something that stopped me dead in my tracks, dead being the operative word. Lying in front of me, just off the path, was the stinking, rotting, maggot-infested corpse of a sheep, or most of it. One of its legs was missing, or rather, I thought it was missing, until I saw it lying a couple of meters away. Likewise, its bottom jaw lay some distance away, stripped clean of flesh, skin, and hair, but otherwise complete. Most of the top jaw and the rest of the head were still attached to the body, but the animal's toothless dental pad was missing, snapped or perhaps mauled off, posthumously, I hoped. Two small, slightly curved horns in the gaping hole of what I guessed might have been the top of an animal's windpipe pointed up at the cold heavens. Patches of black fur protruded from under the head, and the dirty white wool on the body still bore the pink of a farmer's mark. I moved off quickly, but it wasn't long before I encountered another corpse, and this one without much of head, 
and with the wool on its chest ripped open, ribs exposed to scavengers in the elements. I hurried on, hardly looking at this unfortunate beast, determined not to let a couple of dead sheep ruin my walk. Alas, as I rounded another bend in the path, I came to a small ditch, from which a bramble-obscured stream seemed to emerge and flow, back in the direction of the holiday home. Just above the ditch, and upstream from the little brook, lay a third ovine carcass, perhaps the most disturbing one of the three. It wasn't as disgusting as the other two. It didn't stink as much, there were no maggots in evidence, and it was pretty much intact, albeit skeletal. The wool on its top half had largely come away, and now formed a soggy, pale-colored mush underneath the body, while the bottom half was still covered in black and white fur. What rendered this sheep truly horrific was the position it had assumed in death. The body lay stretched out on its back, ribs spread like a grotesque fan, hind legs splayed wide and awkward, painful, distressingly anthropomorphic vulnerability. Apart from those morbidly spread legs, the dead animal rested like a person might lie on a bed or beer, back and neck straight, head facing skywards. Topping the entire macabre effect, if you pardon the pun, was the patch of fuzzy black fur covering the top of the skull, almost like curly human hair. The effect was utterly chilling. A skeletal homunculus, gazing up at an indifferent sky, the juices of its decomposition having long since permeated into the stream beneath. I finally managed to tear my eyes away from the melancholy human-like carcass and looked half-heartedly towards where the rest of my walk would have taken me. About ten meters away lay another dead sheep. This one large, fleshy, woolly, and much fresher than the others. That's it, I give up, I thought suddenly feeling tired, depressed, and not a little nauseous. I turned to go back, and that's when I heard something behind me. A creaking, scuffling noise. And then an eerie, growling, almost human sound. Like the death rattled deep from a dying person's throat, combined with the low, rasping, rumbling bleat of a sheep. Instantly, every tiny hair on the back of my neck stood up, and I honestly thought I was going to have a heart attack. I spun round to where the fresh carcass had been lying, but it was no longer there. It was up on all four cloven-hoofed legs, getting its bearings and gaining speed as it advanced toward me. Its bloodshot, sheepy eyes dead, yet demented, jaws grating and clacking as it rapidly shrank the distance between it and me. Crazed with fear, I turned and ran, almost tripping over the skeletal carcass which had somehow rolled onto its front and was scrambling in the mud at the top of the ditch, trying to haul itself up. Empty eye sockets fixated on me as I narrowly avoided falling into the ditch and ran on back down the path toward the holiday home, back to where the other sheep carcasses were stirring and some kind of unnatural twisted animation and coming for me, jaws snapping, teeth grinding. Now I wasn't the fittest person, but luckily I had a head start. The reanimated monstrosities started off slow before they got going, almost as though chilled bones and stiff muscles had to readjust from death back to a perverse semblance of life. I dodged past the headless, rib-exposed carcass. At least this one didn't have anything to bite me with. 
but somehow it sensed me nonetheless and redoubled its repulsive efforts to writhe in my direction. By the time my path was blocked by the three-legged carcass, my heart felt like it was beating somewhere in my throat and my lungs were on fire. I knew I couldn't stop. The other three dead sheep were right behind me. And as I glanced back, I saw at least three more coming up behind them. If I stopped, they'd be on me. Exactly what that would entail, I had no idea, and even less desire to find out. Screaming, I ran straight at Tripod, and the three-legged stinker hobbled right back at me in what from a distance probably resembled a zombie sheep game of chicken from hell. At the last moment, I threw my camera at the thing's head and veered off the path, hardly believing my luck when Tripod swerved too late to get me, the jagged protrusion of its remaining top jaw missing my leg by an inch. Heart thumping, head pounding, I ran, the ovine zombie apocalypse close on my heels. With the last of my strength, I tumbled over the low wire fence separating the farmer's fields from the back garden of the holiday home and crawled on hands and knees through the grass, mud, and last of the melted snow to the summer house. I pulled myself in and collapsed on the wooden floor, coughing and panting. At least I'd quit smoking a couple of years earlier. If I hadn't, I'd probably be dead by now. The sunshed had no door. I had to get to the house and lock myself in, but I was too exhausted to move. I wondered how on earth I'd make the final few meters to the entrance door. And that's when I heard the gurgling, rasping baws. A few meters away, I reckoned, and coming closer. They'd briefly lost sight of me, but if the headless wonder had managed to come after me, with no eyes and no nose, then doubtless they could sense me in some unspeakable, unthinkable way of their own. I had to get to the house. I can't say I'd caught my breath, but at least I no longer felt like I was dying. I lifted myself from the floor of the sunshed and raised my head slowly, planning to peer out before making a run for it. But I was greeted by the horrific sight, sound, and smell of one of the recently deceased. It had evidently tracked me to the summer house and now bleat howled in triumph. Its stinking maw of a rotting, maggot-spewing mouth just inches from mine. As it lunged forward, I dodged sideways, thrust a foot out of the sunshed and pushed off from the ground, causing the wooden structure to rotate and the entrance to turn away from the monster, bringing the shed to a halt when it was facing the house. Most of the sheep were with still behind the summer house, although now rapidly heading around it in my direction. I raced to the door, pulling the keys out of my pocket as I ran. My fetid ovine entourage threw itself after me. I felt one of the bastards nip at the leg of my jeans. And just as I made it to the door, it went for me again. I kicked at it, and my leg went right through rotted flesh into the stinking innards beneath. I gagged in shock and disgust, but managed to pull my foot back out. The beast paused for only the briefest moment. But by then I was turning the key, and I was in the house locking the door and falling against it, while the monsters outside pummeled the door with their heads or haunches or whatever horrid body parts they still had left. Shaking like the proverbial leaf, I crawled to the bedside table where I'd forgotten my phone and picked out my husband's number. Are you on drugs? Three quarters of an hour had passed since my gibbering phone call and Dan was standing over me, livid. They had these evil, bulging eyes, I tried to explain. 
and they had to be dead because their ribs were sticking out all over the place, and one had no head, but their jaws were clanking, and there were maggots everywhere. They were coming to get me. Dan leaned in really close and peered into my eyes. You are, aren't you? You're on drugs, and you stink. What the fuck have you been doing? The sheep, I stuttered. They might come back. What the fuck have you taken? Nothing. Don't lie to me. Had I been in a fit state to notice, I would have seen that my husband's face was turning a worrying shade of red. He grabbed my arm and dragged me over to the sofa, sitting me down roughly. Your pupils are as big as saucers. What the hell have you taken? Nothing, I whined defensively. Dan wasn't buying any of it. Talk me through everything you ate, drank, and otherwise put in your mouth since you got up this morning. Or should I say, afternoon. I got up at 11.40, I said indignantly. Whatever. Just tell me what you had to eat. All I had was toast, I sighed. Dan continued to glare at me. I had two slices of bread, which I toasted. Then I put butter and jam on them, and then I had some tea. Tea? Dan's grip on my arm tightened. There isn't any tea. Yes, there is. No, there isn't. My parents forgot to bring any tea. My husband pulled me up and marched me over to the kitchen counter. He started going through the cupboards, taking out all the boxes, jars, and packets. He pulled out the tin with the loose-leaf tea I'd helped myself to, opened it, and held it up to the light. Is this what you had? He asked. I nodded. You idiot! Can't you see it has mold in it? Dan thrust the tin in front of my face and shook it. He was right. There did indeed seem to be some mold in it, which I hadn't noticed earlier. I clapped my hand over my mouth. God, that's gross, I said. You really are a moron, my husband concluded. I was beginning to agree with him. And where are mom and dad? They said they'd be right behind me. They were just going to finish their drinks. Maybe the sheep got them, I ventured hesitantly. Dan cast me a filthy look. I was starting to think that perhaps he was right. Perhaps it had all been a bad trip. Maybe I'd visit my mother when we got back and try to find my copy, the dealer's copy of Amazing Dope Tales. If I'd read it all those years ago, I certainly couldn't remember any of it. I glanced at my husband. He was pacing up and down the room, something he only did when he was really pissed off with me. You're unbelievable, he was saying. Not only do you sleep all day, you fuck yourself up with dodgy tea, and you dragged me all the way back here. I still had half a pint. I let my husband's voice fade out, and I watched him walking up and down. Despite the slightly thinning hair on top of his head, the waving arms and angry red tinge to his cheeks, he still looked pretty good. He paced up and down the whole length of patio doors. He strode, head up, back straight, a confident, angry man. He walks like he still has a future, I thought to myself. He must have realized I wasn't listening because he stopped abruptly and glared at me. Just as he opened his mouth again to renew his chastisement of his stupid wife, there was a tremendous crashing sound. Shards flew everywhere, and an undead sheep came flying through the plate glass, 
its jaws clamping onto my husband's neck. It flicked its head sideways, taking my husband's throat with it as it landed hard on the wooden flooring. Blood gushed everywhere. The vile beast molars ground up my husband's flesh as it stared at me with its dead red eyes. Then it sprang. The last thing I heard was a vile, gurgling, resounding, bah. That was Anna Taborska's Two Shakes of a Dead Lamb's Tale, as read by Amanda Stribling. Amanda has recorded close to 150 books, give or take a chapter, and is in the industry by way of being completely obsessed with reading and audiobooks. While also having a flair and passion for performance, she has a natural southern accent, but can also take you from savvy socialite to California girl, to Southern Belle, faster than you can say, bless your heart. Thank you, Amanda. Well, children of the night, the hour is late, and we've run out of tales to tell. For now. Tales to Terrify is made possible by the tremendous generosity of our supporters on Patreon and PayPal. Incredible fans like Kathy Robinson and Amanda Gottfried, whose generous support helps keep the lights on and flickering ominously. Not a supporter already? Head over to patreon.com slash tales to terrify, where you'll find all kinds of perks like ad-free and extended episodes, bonus content, and one-of-a-kind collectibles and merch packs. Every dollar goes back into this show to make it as horrific as possible, and we appreciate it so much. Want another way to support the show that doesn't cost a cent? Head over to Stitcher, Podchaser, or Apple Podcasts and leave us a five-star review. You'll not only put an unnaturally wide smile on our faces, but help new listeners discover our terrifying tales, too. Now you can share your love of the show out in the world with some Tales to Terrify merch. TalesToTerrify.com slash merch will take you to our Tee Public store, where we've got a great collection of creepy custom and curated designs that's always growing, so check back often. Tales to Terrify is produced by Seth Williams, Meredith Morgenstern, Andrew Gibson, and myself, Drew Sebastini, with original theme by Nebulous Entertainment. Tales to Terrify is distributed under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license. Join us again next week as we pay homage to the darkness of yore with more Tales to Terrify.
If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.